time Mario had persuaded us to a third helping, everyone's heart was racing. Batali was an impressively dedicated drinker. He mentioned in passing that, on trips to Italy made with his Babo co-owner, Joe Bastianic, the two of them had been known to put away a case of wine during an evening meal. And while I don't think that any of us drank anything like that, we were, by now, very thirsty. The lardo, the salt, the human heat of so much jollity, and, cheered on, found ourselves knocking back more and more. I don't know. I don't really remember. There was also the grappa and the nocino, and one of my last images is of Batali at three in the morning, a stoutly round man with his back dangerously arched, his eyes closed, a long red ponytail swinging rhythmically behind him, an unlit cigarette dangling from his mouth, his red converse high tops pounding the floor, playing air guitar to Neil Young's Southern Man. Batali was forty-two, and I remember thinking it had been a long time since I'd seen a grown man playing air guitar. He then found the soundtrack for Buena Vista Social Club, tried to salsa with one of the women guests, who promptly fell over his sofa, moved on to her boyfriend, who was unresponsive, put on a Tom Waits CD, and sang along as he washed the dishes and swept the floor. He reminded me of an arrangement we'd made for the next day. When I'd invited Batali to dinner, he'd reciprocated by asking me to join him at a New York Giants football game, tickets courtesy of the commissioner of the NFL who had just eaten at Babo, and then disappeared with three of my friends, assuring them that, with his back-of-the-hand knowledge of downtown establishments open until five, he'd find a place to continue the evening. They ended up at Mary Lou's in the village. In Batali's description, a wise guy joint where you can get anything at any time of night, and none of it good. It was daylight when Batali got home. I learned this from his building superintendent the next morning as the two of us tried to get Batali to wake up. The commissioner's driver was waiting outside. When Batali finally appeared, forty-five minutes later, he was momentarily perplexed, standing in the doorway of his apartment in his underwear and wondering why I was there, too. Batali has a remarkable girth, and it was startling to see him clad so. Then, in minutes, he transformed himself into what I would come to know as the Batali look. The shorts, the clogs, the wraparound sunglasses, the red hair pulled back into his ponytail. One moment a rotund Clark Kent in his underpants, the next, Molto Mario, the clever, many-layered name of his cooking television program, which in one of its senses literally means very Mario, that is, an intensified Mario, an exaggerated Mario, and a figure whose renown I didn't appreciate until, as guests of the commissioner, we were allowed onto the field before the game. Fans of the New York Giants were so famously brutish as to be cartoons, bare-chested on a wintry morning, or wearing hard hats, in any case, not guys putting in their domestic duty in the kitchen, and I was surprised by how many recognized the ponytailed chef who stood facing them, arms crossed over his chest, beaming. "'Hey, Molto!' they shouted. "'What's cooking, Mario? Mario, make me a pasta!' I stood back with one of the security people, taking in the spectacle. By now, members of the crowd were chanting, Molto, Molto, Molto. I love this guy, the security guard said. Just looking at him makes me hungry. Mario Batali is the most recognized chef in a city with more chefs than any other city in the world. In addition to Batali's television show and his appearances promoting, say, the NASCAR racetrack in Delaware, he was simply and energetically omnipresent. It would be safe to say that no New York chef ate more, drank more, and was out and about as much. If you live in New York City, you will see him eventually, 
sooner if your evenings get going around two in the morning. With his partner Joe, Batali also owned two other restaurants, Esca and Lupa, and a shop selling Italian wine. And when we met, they were talking about opening a pizzeria and buying a vineyard in Tuscany. But Baba was the heart of their enterprise, crashed into what was originally a 19th century coach house just off Washington Square in Greenwich Village. The building was narrow, the space was crowded, jostly and loud, and the food, studiously Italian rather than Italian-American, was characterized by an over-the-top flourish that seemed to be expressly Batali's. People went there in the expectation of excess. Sometimes I wondered if Batali was less a conventional cook than an advocate of a murkier enterprise of stimulating outrageous appetites, whatever they might be, and satisfying them intensely by whatever means. A friend of mine, who once dropped by the bar for a drink and was then fed personally by Batali for the next six hours, went on a diet of soft fruit and water for three days. This guy knows no middle ground. It's just excess on a level I've never known before. It's food and drink and food and drink and food and drink until you feel you're on drugs. Chefs, who were regular visitors, were subjected to extreme versions of what was already an extreme experience. We're going to kill him, Batali said with maniacal glee as he prepared a meal for a rival who had innocently ordered a seven-course tasting menu to which Batali added a lethal number of extra courses. The starters, all variations in pig, included lonza, the cured backstrap from the cream, apple, and walnut herd, copa from the shoulder, a fried foot, a porcini mushroom roasted with Batali's own pancetta, the belly plus, for the hell of it, a pasta topped with guanciale, the jowls. This year, Mario was trying out a new motto, wretched excess is just barely enough. Batali was born in 1960 and grew up outside Seattle, a suburban kid with a solid leave-it-to-beaver upbringing. His mother, Marilyn, is French-Canadian. From her comes her son's flaming red hair and a fair, un-Italian complexion. The Italian is from his father, Armandino, the grandson of immigrants who arrived in the 1890s. When Mario was growing up, his father was a well-paid Boeing executive, and in 1975, he moved his family to Spain. That according to Gina, Mario's youngest sibling, was when Mario changed. Madrid in the post-Franco years, bars with no minimum age, hash hangouts, the world's oldest profession suddenly legalized, was a place of exhilarating license, and Mario seems to have experienced a little bit of everything on offer. He was caught growing marijuana on the roof of his father's apartment building, the first incident of what would become a theme. Batali was later expelled from his dorm in college, suspected of dealing, and later still, there was some trouble in Tijuana that actually landed him in jail. By the time Batali returned to the United States in 1978 to attend Rutgers University in New Jersey, he was determined to get back to Europe. I wanted to be a Spanish banker. I loved the idea of making a lot of money and living a luxurious life in Madrid. And his unlikely double major was in business management and Spanish theater. But after being thrown out of his dorm, Batali got work as a dishwasher at a pizzeria called Stuff Your Face. In its name alone, destiny seemed to be calling, and his life seemed to change. He was promoted to cook, then line cook, working at one station in a line of stations making one thing, and then asked to be manager, an offer he turned down. He didn't want the responsibility. He was having too good a time. And when, in his junior year, he attended a career conference hosted by representatives from major corporations, Batali realized he had been wrong. He was never going to be a banker. He was going to be a chef.
My mother and grandmother had always told me that I should be a cook. In fact, when I was preparing my applications for college, my mother had suggested cooking school, but I said, Ma, that's too gay. I don't want to go to cooking school. That's for fags. Five years later, Batali was back in Europe, attending the Cordon Bleu in London during the day, and then working at a pub. The pub was the Six Bells on the King's Road in Chelsea. Mariam was bartending at the so-called American Bar, when a high-priced dining room opened in the back and a chef was hired to run it, a Yorkshireman named Marco Pierre White. Batali, bored by the pace of cooking school, was hired to be the new chef's slave. Today, Marco Pierre White is regarded as the most influential chef in Britain, as well as the most foul-tempered, most mercurial, and most bullying and it's an extraordinary fortuity that these two men found themselves in a tiny pub kitchen together when Mario was 22 and Marco a year younger. Batali didn't understand what he was witnessing. I assumed I was seeing what everybody else already knew. I didn't feel like I was on the cusp of a revolution. And yet, while I had no idea this guy was about to become so famous, I could see he was preparing food from outside the box. He was a genius on the plate. I'd never worked on presentation. I just put shit on the plate. He described whites making a deep green puree from basil leaves and then a white butter sauce, then swirling the green sauce in one direction and the white sauce in the other and drawing a swerving line down the middle of the plate. I'd never seen anyone draw a fucking line with two sauces. White would order Batali to follow him to the market. I was his whipping boy. Yes, master, I'd answer. Whatever you say, master and they'd return with game birds or ingredients for some of the most improbable dishes ever to be served in an English pub. Ecrevy in a reduced lobster sauce, oysters with caviar, roasted ortolan, a rare tiny bird served virtually breathing gulp down.